if I start to bore you with my repetition, then please tell me because I think I only do this. So as the singular human entity manifesting in consciousness and socks today, here and now, all I see is this. Whereas for you, as someone who's consuming, receiving this information, you're like, I could be the, the like one of 20 sort of people. So you might not find it boring. To me, I don't find it boring. I find it fascinating. It's like this really interesting puzzle that I have the privilege of, of solving. And so I'll, I'll talk about it ad nauseum, especially because it makes me feel really smug and clever because everybody said you can't resolve it. And I'm like, oh, really? Really? <laughs> we'll fucking see about that. And uh, I actually created something that was useful. So if I am boring you, then just say, don't be all fucking thingy. I don't care. I honestly, I, I don't care. And then if somebody says it's boring, don't hound them in the comments. Like, don't you say it's boring? So I'm going to say something that I've said before. And maybe, excuse me, I'm sick. Are you still doing 75 hard even though you're sick? Why, yes, I am. <laughs> I'll, I'll mute the mic if that's going to happen. That's going to happen again. I'll mute the mic. I do apologize for that. Um, so I got a question, which is, when I'm doing emotional literacy, for those of you who don't know, when somebody is traumatized, their emotions essentially freeze. It's a protective response to protect the entire ecosystem of the human being. From a systems thinking perspective, we're operating on multiple interacting complicated systems that govern your hormones, neurotransmitters, your physiological functioning, your metabolism, peristalsis, the rate at which you digest food. All of that you know, is, is related to perception, emotion, cognition, all of that. And when someone is traumatized, let's, let's, I'm going to try and use less weird acronyms in this video that freezes all of it. You go, Oh, you mean the freeze response? No, no. The whole system goes into shock. The whole system goes into shock and it freezes up. So we were told there's really nothing that you can do for that. The proper term is post-traumatic stress disorder. But I agree with uh, the stand-up comedian, George Carlin, that actually it's like, we've probably made the words too complicated. And we've, by making them more complicated, the purpose of that is to um, protect the ears and the sentiment oh, of the listener from the brutal reality. Uh, and he, in a very funny stand-up routine, documents how we went from shell shock to battle fatigue. So the shell shock is perfect. You are shocked by the sound of a shell going off next to you and going fucking bang. And you go, Jesus, you're in shock. Then there was battle fatigue. It's like, oh, you've been battling for too long and now you're a bit tired. Eh, it's still there. It still has the word battle in it. And then slowly it developed into trauma and then post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it's a freezing of the system. And then um, Judith Herman coined the term complex post-traumatic stress disorder after observing that people with PTSD 
and uh, people who sh who had ex experienced adverse childhood conditions, really shitty childhoods, like abusive childhoods, showed up with the same cluster of symptoms. But there was another level to it, which was that they couldn't escape. So people with single singular singular event trauma PTSD are in the same cluster as people who have multiple event trauma with an element of double bind plus imprisonment now called CPTSD complex post-traumatic stress disorder right don't don't get worried it's all trauma it's just something happens it's too painful to deal with and the system responds in order to survive in the moment in an adaptive way i.e in a way that is helpful because if you're in a battle scenario, you do want your emotions switched off. You do need to be in a psychopathic headspace to survive. Um, and if you're receiving uh, a, a deeply traumatic, inescapable uh, situation over and over again in childhood, then yes, you also need to be switching your emotions off. Otherwise, you're not going to function properly in order to survive the situation it's presented with. That response is adaptive, meaning useful in the moment, but it's maladaptive when it takes place over a long timeline. So if you go across the room with your traumatic response, if the room is time, you will end up with a lot of uh, problems because it's a maladaptive response. Un momento, por favor. Out, out, vile demons, the power of Christ compels you. We were told in the psychology community that there's really nothing you can do for that um it's a trope you've seen it in movies where the psychiatrist will just look sad and go well you know this is uh deep-seated deep-seated childhood trauma nothing we can do there's nothing we can do we can give you some drugs though and then they just that's it so i looked at it from a systems thinking point of view and i was like well where's the breakdown in the system like a dumb, uh, crude, no respect for history or authority having dumb dummy that I am. <laughs> I was like, whoa, let's pop the hood. <laughs> whoa, this bit's a bit greased up. This needs moving. And I was like, where's the break? Show me where, show me just, okay, I, I believe you. You're telling me it's not fixable. I believe you. It's fine. Just tell me what's going on. The person's emotions have ceased to function. Okay, why is that a problem? Because if your emotions are switched off, everything in life is, is harder. Plus, the emotions aren't fully switched off in a Freudian, Jungian, Adlerian uh, sense. They are um, suppressed, and then they're coming back out of their suppression and manifesting in um, a, a very non-positive way. What do we call them? Emotional flashbacks. And if you know what CPTSD is and you're living with CPTSD, you know one of the major problems in your life is emotional flashbacks that are strong and intense that can go on for days, they can go on for weeks. You can have a cascading series of emotional flashbacks and it's just no way to live. So I said, okay, fine. Let me make the system not the person i'm very cruel and inhumane i was like not the person somebody with a story with socks on who cares they'll be let let me help them it's not gonna it's not gonna help me help them to be like looking into their eyes going tell me all of your story 
from day one. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, if, if that was going to work, it would have worked because a lot of counseling and therapy looks like that. Tell me the story. Now tell me it again. Like, if I go to the doctor with a sore knee and he goes, what's wrong with it? And I go, well, it's a sore knee. How is it sore? Well, it hurts when I do this. How did you do it? I think I did it like this. Okay, cool. Come back again next week. I'm like, well, where's the remedy? No, no, no. This is the remedy. Come back. And next week I come in and he goes, how are you doing? I'm like, well, my knee is sore. How is it sore? It's sore like this. How did you do it? And I tell them the same story over and over again. How's that therapeutic? Other than the element that I'm getting some human attention, that somebody's asking me and somebody, another adult is focusing on it. Okay, maybe that has some benefit. I just want to deal with a systemic problem. So the systemic problem was the emotions are not functioning. They've switched off and they're now um, through suppression, they're re-expressing themselves in this negative way because they've been pushed down in order for the system to survive. Okay, so let's familiarize the human being through a safe and organic means back to their emotions. That's all emotional literacy means. That's all it is. But the power of that is in self-acknowledgement. You are now being the higher critical executive functioning part of yourself, sometimes referred to as the inner parent, sometimes referred to as the superego. If we're going to be spiritual, we could even call it the higher self to a degree. Excuse me. Is looking down at how you feel and acknowledging the self, which is really important because when people are highly traumatized, highly abused, highly hounded, they shrink and make themselves invisible. And the ego becomes, I don't know why I said becomes, <laughs> becomes, that's better, becomes weak and small and fragile. So I'm not the um, kill, kill your ego guy. I'm the uh, build the ego with proper boundaries guy. I might build, build it up so that it's strong, so that it's functioning, so that it has boundaries, so that you're not leaking onto other people and you're not letting other people leak into your space. That's all that that is. That's all that it is. But that self-acknowledgement offered where you say, not what is my story of what happened, but what are the emotions I'm experiencing around what happened, about, about what happened is the magic. Then when you draw that and you write it down, in the way that I have described to you multiple times, and I don't want to <laughs> bore you to death, but it's basically a mind map. You all know what a mind map is, right? There's a Tumblr account there somewhere where I just took on everybody's mind, mind map of their emotional literacy. There's no hard and fast rules for the structure of how you should do this. But if you want a starting point, you can go to Instagram, at Richard Grannon. You don't need an Instagram account. Let me say that again for the people in the back. You do not need an Instagram account in order to access Instagram. Do not get an Instagram account. It's bad. Don't download the app on your phone. It'll drive you nuts. Just go open a web browser and put in instagram.com forward slash Richard Grant and you can go and you go, as you'll see a, a, a thing with colored squares with different emotions on, including positive, a, a positive emotion. Go to start here and it tells you exactly what to do. 
But you can draw the mind map however you want. You can make it colorful. You can put drawings on it. You can draw unicorns on it. I don't care. What I do care about is that you're sat with a pen in your hand, hovering over the paper saying, how did I feel about that is the question. And then an answer comes up. And in that gap is where all of the magic happens. Maybe I didn't repeat this enough now that I've actually gone into it. Maybe I'm not repeating myself. Maybe I'm not really being uh, super clear enough. Excuse me, I did not prepare properly, but this is free, so you'll just have to endure the pain. Now my mouth is close to the mic. <coughs> oh, I'm coughing, sorry. Nobody ever calls me, and now that I'm recording, people are calling me. A no-caller ID. You can piss off with your no-caller ID. <coughs> It's probably, it's probably one of my mates who's wondering if I'm actually live or not. So he's like, I know, I'll call him. It'll be a right lark. <laughs> That's the kind of friends I have. They talk like that. <laughs> Here's one I drew earlier. This is the acknowledgement of my primary emotions. And this is an effort to get down to the secondary emotions. I made this up. You, you did what? What did you do? I made it up. I have a second-rate psychology degree from a place that's more of a business school than a psychology school. I made it up. You can do whatever the F you want to do. I made this up. Now, I don't know if it's thousands, but there are probably, there's definitely, I'm, I can say with confidence, hundreds of people who've benefited from this. Hundreds of people who, who will watch this video, who will probably jump in the comments and go, this changed my life. I made this up. Boys and girls, it's not from the down from the mountain inscribed with the finger of God in stone. I made this up. If you can make something up that's better, that works more for you, then do it. If you can make something up that's better that you can give to the community and, you know, will help people, just go right the hell ahead and do it. There's people out there really, really struggling. Their lives don't work. They can't go to the supermarket. It's inconvenient to not be able to go to the supermarket in a human person's life. I made it up. So when you're asking me questions like, do I start from the left or from the right? Do I need to draw a circle or can it be a square? Can I draw a line or an arrow? I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter because I made it up. The only thing that matters, this, you want to know what matters? Look, look at me. Watch me. See me with my pen? Look. See this? Um, how did I? God, you know, that was a really bad argument uh, that I had with her. Fucking hell, I really lost my shit. That's that's not cool. Wow, what was that about? I mean, she she did this and she said, Yeah, that's true, she did. But I think my response was disproportionate. God damn, I need I fucking okay. All right. Um all right, argument, argument. There you go. And you see how I'm talking to myself, like how people talk when they when they're 
What do I need from the shops? I need milk. I need socks. Why do you always talk about socks? Because it's the one thing that unifies us all. It's a petty little piece of life that everybody from the president down has to deal with every day. We all have to put socks on. It keeps you humble and your socks go on your feet and your feet are connected to the earth. That's why he talks about socks all the time. I think there's actually a little bit of an exercise that I had to do for 75 hard here. Push-ups, swings, and bear crawls. Wow. So I wrote the word argument. Okay. And then from there, I'm going to come up with a list of adjectives of how I felt. Now, I want you to draw a mind map because the way that you express things on paper impacts how your brain can um, process what it is. A mind map looks systemic. It looks like one thing is impacting the other and the brain's going to go, oh, this connects to that. If all you can do is lists, it's better than nothing. So if all I do is a list of what did I feel during the argument? Um, uh, rage, uh, disrespected, um, whatever people feel in arguments, you know, irritated, uh, sad, um, taken for granted. And all I do is, is a straight list. That's okay, but I prefer this if you can. But don't, don't be, wow, that was a big one. Don't be stiff. Don't be naive. Don't be rigid in your approach to this. You're only acknowledging how you feel. That's it. So um, I got an email from uh, a former client and it has two good questions in it. Question number one, would you ever do the emotional literacy exercise for a positive emotion, such as if you feel a positive emotion at the time of doing the exercise? I'm wondering how that would work. We've taken, we're, we're taking the old experiences and old beliefs around the emotion as well as sort of flipping it to an opposite emotion when starting with a negative emotion, and I don't mean exactly opposite as on the color wheel, though that may be sensible, but just from negative to positive. Okay, um, number one, this isn't quantum physics. It's not the mathematics of firing a jet into outer space. You're just acknowledging how you feel. Yes, it is useful to acknowledge positive emotions during your emotional literacy exercise. However, I didn't design it on that basis because people's lives are not being ruined by the fact that they're experiencing too many positive emotions that they can't figure out. They're not going, oh, I feel excited. Then I felt joy. Then I felt contentment. Then I felt peace. My God, can you make it stop? I'm so bewildered. So like, I didn't do it like that. But if you look on that Instagram at Richard Grannon, there is one for happiness. And then if you actually open it up and go through and read what is there, it tells you step by step in detail why you should acknowledge positive emotions and when you should acknowledge them. And I can give you the, the cliff notes right here, seeing as apparently it's too hard to just go onto Instagram and look at the bite-sized chunks I've already given you. Here's the cliff notes. When you are experiencing a positive emotion, that shows you that you're in alignment and that you're doing something right. So you should do more of that. 
Yes, if you expand how you feel when you're in a positive state and you understand with nuance where the positive state is coming from, yes, that is going to be of use to you. But I deal with people with CPTSD who are in a state of emergency. So positive emotions is more at the personal development end of the, of the swimming pool. I'm trying to stop people from killing themselves. I'm trying to stop them from killing themselves at 6 p.m. this afternoon because that's what they've got on the diary today. So I've focused on the negative ones, but the positive ones are important as well. But they're not going to put you in a state of emergency. He then asks a second very good question. Would you ever do the exercise for a past emotion, not present emotional state? Okay, uh, the, the question goes on. So would you consider doing the exercise to write about the emotion experienced earlier in the day? Okay. Um, this exercise is only to help you get in touch with how you feel. Because if you're traumatized and you're here watching this video and you go, my life doesn't really work because I feel this way, that way, I can't make good decisions, I get into bad relationships, if I start a project, I can't follow it through, that there's a problem. The exercise is there to help you acknowledge your emotions. There is not, nor has there ever been an, any implication for where on the timeline you should experience that emotion. Never. There's never been that implication. If you look at the emotional literacy course, uh, it's actually predominantly focused on uh, the past, on how you felt in the past. Um, sometimes when I'm doing the videos, I'll talk about how you felt in the past or how you're feeling right now. You can do both and you should do both. I want you to understand the emotions that you experienced around past events. And I want you to have this literacy, fluency, fitness, if you prefer, around emotions. So that at any moment I can get a hold of you and go, how are you feeling right now? And you go, um, I feel pretty good. Or um, this makes me anxious. Or um, da -da. it should only be a pause of like two or three seconds and you can pull an emotion up. An adjective that describes the emotion you're experiencing. It can even be for things that you haven't experienced yet in the future. You could say, if this happened, if you achieve this goal, how would that make you feel? So you would write in the, in the middle, you would write goal, goal, goal. You'd write goal and then you'd have your primary emotions. You'd have your primary emotions coming off from the goal. And then you'd look at each one of the primary emotions. You'd be like, um, I achieved that goal and I felt proud. Well, I will achieve that goal. When I, when I achieve that goal, I think I will feel proud. It's actually a good uh, life coaching technique if you think about a goal that's in your future as though it was already achieved. So linguistically, you can put yourself in the future and go, I achieved that. How did it make me feel? And then your unconscious is going, your unconscious goes, what? What? Did we already do that? Oh, quickly change everything so that it looks like so, so that we can get up to speed with what the uh, higher executive function is telling us has already happened. It's a useful trick. Um, and then you'd get into the emotions behind pride. Like what are the, 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 the things, the other nuanced sort of micro emotions that support you feeling the fact that you're proud, that you wanted to do something, you set a goal and then you work towards it and you achieved it. So yes, 
you can do emotional literacy about emotions experienced anywhere on the timeline, even in the future or something that you have to do in the future. And you're like, how is that going to make me feel? How do I feel now about the future events? How will I feel after the future events has taken place? Fantastic. It's like yoga for the mind. You stretch this way. Now we'll stretch that way. If you yanged, now we'll yin in uh, strength training. If you pushed, now you must pull. So you're moving in all the directions and covering all of the bases. Getting in touch with your emotions is easy. Becoming emotionally literate is really easy. And you should, because most of the people around you, this is now life coaching advice rather than therapeutic uh, recommendations. Most of the people around you are extremely emotionally illiterate and you will have a huge advantage over them. The more emotionally literate you become, the faster you can cycle through the chapters of your life. Like if you think of your life as a series of learnings, of experiences that are to move you forward, perhaps if you like a woo perspective, a series of learnings to elevate your consciousness, emotional literacy dramatically accelerates that. So you don't need to go and have that four-year relationship with all that story, with all that drama, with all that karma. You could just go, you could just go through it inside of three weeks and be popped out the other side and go, thank you. Got it. Next. Move on. <laughs> nothing. 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 Nothing I've ever experienced in this life elevates consciousness. And I mean in the wooest, the wooest way as rapidly as emotional literacy, you will find yourselves getting to places that you, you just, you just wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. In terms of overcoming codependency, emotional literacy is critical. And it's only as easy as writing down in note form, this thing that I made up. And if you want to change it, and you want to do it your own way, or in a different shape, or with just through art, or just through music and writing a poem or a song. I can dig it as long as the key elements are there. You must be acknowledging how you feel and you must dig down to the nuanced emotions. That's where the magic takes place. Because we are, if you're traumatized, you're gonna learn to deny yourself and deny your feelings. If you're living under the cultural conditioning that we're all living under, you're also traumatically conditioned to deny yourself and your emotions. If you're living under the kind of political indoctrination that we're all living under, you are going to be traumatically conditioned to deny the self. How can you not be codependent? What is codependency? Codependency in its essence is an effort to be something other than what you truly are. Codependency in its essence, let's, let's go a little bit woo. Here's the woo section. It might be combined with the conspiracy section. Um, the word placebo has a history. It means in Latin vulgate, I will please. Now, if you put into Google Translate, I will please and translate it into Latin, it won't say that. It will say something like ego placeum ibut or something like that. But it actually comes from a specific place in time. There was a version of the Bible that was translated that said uh, that was trying to translate from Hebrew. I will walk in path. I will walk in step with the Lord. And the way it was translated was into Latin was I will please the Lord. 
and it was placebo domino placebo domino now why do we have that's weird why do we have the concept of placebo in modern times and why does it imply trickery or falsehood it's pretty interesting they used to have these people that they would call uh i can't remember the proper term it's like placebo tricksters and what it was was that this particular line of verse was always sung at funerals. Placebo Domino. At some point during the funeral, they'd sing Placebo Domino. And you'd have these flipping imps, these scavengers, these scallywags, would follow the funeral procession singing Placebo Domino. But they were not associated to the person who died. What they were doing was they were trying to hijack some free food from the uh, their, their funeral crashes. So Placebo Domino singers became this derogatory term for uh, funeral crashes for people who were trying to scavenge a bit of food, though they had nothing to do with the person who died. That's where the element of deception comes in. But the root of placebo means I shall please. A codependent fawn response is a placebo. You are Your personality is becoming a pill or a remedy for another person to consume that pleases them call this people pleaser syndrome you are a placebo when you're codependent so you are literally not being your authentic self if you were trained into this in childhood or if you spent a lot of your adult life in an environment where this was simply demanded of you and look at modern culture modern culture and modern politics is an abusive mummy is an abusive daddy so really nobody escapes this there's only a question of whether people are aware and awake to it or not that's that's the only different differentiation we're all now trained to be codependent foreign responders that's why this subject is getting so much attention because so many people resonate with it and they're like narcissistic abuse leading to codependency i kind of feel like yeah that feels like well it is you even if your partner is an angel as good as gold you're still in a relationship with culture. You're still in a relationship with your government. You're still in a relationship with the propaganda and it's abusive and it fractures your ego through trauma and indoctrinates you exactly the way that an abusive partner would. And you end up with the only response that stops the torture. What's the only response that stops the torture? He says, citing 1984, as he has done in, in the past. The 1984 from the book, by George Orwell, torture scene between um, O'Brien, the torturer, and um, Winston, the person being tortured for committing the crime. What was the crime that Winston was was uh, was being tortured for? A sex crime. He fell in love. He fell in love. He found human intimacy with Julia, and they they went to another place outside of the city. I think a farm, just so that they could get nasty. Because they got nasty, they had to be tortured, see? Because you can't do no fucking. Not without a license. Not in the Orwellian nightmare. You're not allowed to be intimate. Human intimacy is the ultimate thought crime in the face of the party, in the face of the governing system of Big Brother. Human intimacy is the ultimate crime. Why? Sam Backlin told us why when we were talking about social media. Because it turns the eyes away from Big Brother, from the Godhead of, of government towards, from Big Brother to the sacred other, from Big Brother to the lover. You cannot let your eyes, I cannot 
I'm a fascist now. I even have the little mustache for it. You know, people ask me why I shave this in like this. I don't. This is my genetics. It's it. I naturally grow like an Errol Flynn, Zorro. This is my mustache. But if I shaved it all off, I'd have like a little fascist guy mustache, right? <laughs> and I'd say, you cannot love another. Um, fascism demands total love or i want all your love i want all your time i want all your attention i want all eyes on me it can never be turned to anybody else that is unacceptable so love becomes the ultimate crime what does o'brien do it was replicated by uh, uh star trek the next generation with john luke picard where the guy is showing him the lights and he says how many lights are there and there's four lights. So John Luke Picard goes, there's four lights. And he tortures him for reporting what he accurately sees. But the scene in Star Trek did not go far enough. I don't know whether they really understood what the point Orwell was making. But you get this wonderful bit of overacting from uh, Mr. Plummy voice, where he's going, there are four lights. <laughs> it's, like, it's not the fucking World Shakespeare Company now, mate. <laughs> Star Trek. It's good. I, I liked that. I liked that. In the scene with uh, it's a, it's a, it's a not a rip off. It's more like an homage, homage, homage uh, to 1984. Winston says, uh, O'Brien says, "How many fingers am I holding up, Winston?" And Winston says, uh, "You're holding up three fingers." And he's tortured. I think he's being racked. I think he's being racked, which is uh, which is the worst torture apparently of all the tortures that were designed in medieval times they only ever brought the rack out for the worst people and if you think of all the other nasty things that they could do to you for you really like you don't even want to take your brain there but like the rack was that's they they the historians universally agree that most likely uh, guido forks uh, guy forks they probably racked him which was really super, super rare, and they'd really try not to. These are people who use torture. I'm fascinated by that period of, of history. Um, the king actually said, he wrote a letter to the torturers, and he said, please, um, in the name of God, start with the gentlest tortures. The gentlest tortures. That's a phrase from a king talking to his, uh, they were statesmen, they were the nobility, and they'd been assigned this task by royalty, you must, we, we need a confession from him, but please, my lords, start with the gentlest tortures. You should never put those two words together. It's a wonderful, it's like a new speak. It's like double speak, the gentlest tortures. Guido was, uh, was racked. Um, they think on and off for three days. Um, and you can imagine what that would do to a human body. It would be enormously painful. Um, especially after you'd already been injured, they then, take you to your cell, bring you back out and start again. So he broke. Of course he did. In the story of 1984, um, I, I'm pretty sure Winston is being racked. So he says, how many fingers am I holding up? And Winston says, three. And O'Brien tortures him. And he's like, what, what do you want from me? So how many fingers am I holding up? Three. No. How many fingers am I holding up? He goes, I, I don't know, two. And he says, good, that's a start. That's a start. They continue to torture him, and eventually Winston says, I don't know what you want from me, Daddy. You get the implication. 
abusive parent, abusive government. I don't know what you want from me, screaming out into the void in angst. It's why the Joker has become so popular. It's why the Joker film has, uh, it's just Joker, it's not the Joker, jo the, the film Joker um, has caused so much ructions because it's pointing directly to this process. What do you want? So there's a scene in the notebook. What do you want? What do you want? Tell me what you want to make this stop. How do I make this stop? And he says, O'Brien, the torturer says, that's better. If I tell you there are two fingers there, will you say there are two fingers? And Winston, in agony, terrified, um, says, yes, 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 of course. So how many fingers am I holding up? Two, two, there are two fingers. I, there are two fingers. O'Brien tortures him. And Winston's brain is now, his mind is now fracturing. He's like, I thought I cracked the code to end the abuse. So all of you who are here watching me now, you're code crackers. You probably learn language really quickly. You can probably adapt to foreign cultures like that. You probably understand the nuance of metacommunication because you've learned to be hypervigilant through long-term abuse. You're trying to crack the code that stops the torture. That's all there is. So you're code crackers. We all are. Doesn't end there though. Because he says, if I tell you there are two fingers, what will you say? I will tell you there are two fingers. And he tortures him again. Why? Why? Why are you torturing me again? Imagine the frustration, the terror, the anxiety. I thought I thought I was giving you a phone response. I gave you what you wanted, even though what I gave you really matters to me. Because to, to Winston, this is a guy who says freedom is the capacity to say two plus two equals four. You don't get to tell me that somebody who existed doesn't exist anymore. They've just been removed from history. That was Winston's job. He worked for the state and he removed people from history. This is a reference to Stalin uh, had a famous picture with, I think it was with Trotsky. And then he fell out with Trotsky. So he just had him airbrushed out of the picture. <laughs> he is gone now. <laughs> what, what happened to Trotsky? Who? I don't, I don't know any man whose name is Trotsky. No, nothing. I know nothing. Here is picture. Picture has no Trotsky. It's no Trotsky. <laughs> so he just wiped people out of history. O'Brien says, no. Winston, you are trying to please me. You are trying to be a placebo. You are trying to say, I shall please. How many fingers am I holding up? It's two, two, two. He says, no, I don't believe you. What do you mean? It's, it's what you say. No, I don't want you to just say what I want to hear. I want you to see two fingers. It is not enough that I get your spoken consent, your spoken concession. This is what would have been in, in previous iterations of, of the Inquisition. Um, in the medieval Inquisition, you only had to say, yes, I sucked the devil's teats. I, you know, this is what, this is what these fucking perverts in cloaks wanted you to say. It, it was, it was, they wanted you to give them pornographic details of sexual acts that are, pretty strong like ah, i won't go into it here but like pretty pretty hardcore they wanted hardcore 
pornographic, in-depth descriptions of what you did with Satan and his minions to a graphic, really graphic degree, which I won't repeat here because it would be gratuitous. But for example, did you suck Satan's teeth? Yes, 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 yes. And that was you saying yes, so that the torture would stop, so that they would just burn you instead. (laughs) (laughs) Same in 1984. He didn't go along with it for salvation. He went along with it so the torture would stop because he knew ultimately they were going to shoot him. The end The end goal is not salvation. The end goal is death. The end goal is like, how do I play along with you so that you just kill me? If you were lucky and you had uh, recanted historically um, with the witch trials um, and you had recanted, it was it was likely that they would uh, choke you to death first. Um, if, and especially if like somebody had paid, they would just come back, you would be attached to the, um, the, the stake and the executioner would come behind you and garrot you. So you wouldn't have to experience the, the, the fullness of it. That was, that was considered a kindness. That was considered a kindness. King Henry VIII was uh, one of the only kings who ever put a woman to torture. And that was for a, a religious dispute. And that was considered, you know, by the nobility, they're all like, uh, we don't usually torture women uh, like that. Uh, King Henry VIII, I'm laughing. It's not funny at all. It's grotesque. Uh, when he had her uh, burned at the stake, um, he asked as a mercy that she have explosives attached to her neck. You, you probably don't know. You like most people wouldn't wouldn't be aware. There's the level of insanity of people in power, the level of insanity of the state. What's the kind? You should really torture a woman. I didn't want to torture her. Are we burning her? Yes. Tomorrow we burn her, my lord. I, I think it would be kindness if we blew her fucking head off. You know, she only needs to experience the agony of the flames for a few minutes, and then her brain, her head can just be burned off. <laughs> That's what we did to each other for centuries and centuries. And here we are going, oh, we're so civilized. We're such lovely, lovely creatures. So it then becomes not enough that you recant, that you uh, um, canto, cantar is a song that you sing. You recant, you sing a new song. So your confession, when the Italian-American mafia would have the expression to sing like a canary, if you confessed an interrogation, you sang, you were a singer, you were a bird, you were a canary, you sing like a canary, cantare, uh, Latin, uh, Italian, Spanish, and uh, Portuguese as well, cantare. So recantare, re-sing. So you sang one song and you said that uh, the Catholic church was, now we need you to sing another song. I don't want to sing another song. Well, we don't want your kneecaps to face that way anymore. <laughs> so they moved them around as he went, you know what? I actually think I prefer your song. <laughs> so they'd recant. And that was enough for those murderous, narcissistic, psychopathic perverts who were inculcated in a, in a truly evil, anti-human Perverts philosophy. I was listening to Zizek the other day. No surprise to anybody here. 
um, I, I recommend that you subscribe to his uh, podcasts on iTunes. There's somebody who just is uploading speeches by Zizek at random. There's no consistency to it. It's all over the place, much like a Zizek talk. And uh, Zizek said something very interesting. He said, fascism always needs a pervert. Fascism always needs a pervert. It has perversion at its core. So when we let people dominate the narrative and when we let people take away our freedoms, we are letting perverts, and he means that in the psychoanalytic sense, total perverts, people who's, who are traumatized, broken in a way that has made them entitled, sadistic and predatory, we're letting them take over. In that period, it was enough to say, I will sing another song. Um, I, I think the Roman Catholic Church is a wonderful institution and I like it very much. Please stop pulling my fingernails out and just kill me. In 1984, George Orwell, in his genius, predicted that that would not be enough in the future, that you and I would have to internalize the interrogator, internalize the torturer, have the torture hijack the superego and the higher executive functioning so that you actually make yourself see reality differently so that you're not faking. How many fingers am I holding up? You must hallucinate two fingers. You must say that up is down and that left is right and you must mean it. This is what is being demanded of us today, that you must mean that you see two fingers. You know very well that you don't. You know perfectly well that, that that is not reality. You know perfectly well that people are trying right now to pervert not just language, but scientific fact, and that we have now legions of doctors who've taken a Hippocratic oath that they're all in total abrogation of, spouting utter nonsense and knowing it just so that they don't face the modern equivalent of the tortures of the Inquisition. This is not good. If our doctors and our scientists are now warping truth and facts to align with the political ideology, we really are in a dark place. Well, that was cheerful, Richard. Thank you very much for that. I said I'd go a bit weird and a bit conspiracy theory, so you were warned. The antidote to this? The antidote to this is you. You're the antidote to this. Don't be the placebo. Don't be the fake pill that pleases. Be the antidote. Be the pill that cures the disease. That is the antidote to the poison. That is the anti-venom. Antidotes are not pleasant. Antidotes are not easy breezy. Antidotes can be very painful and very uncomfortable for the people taking them. How do you stop being a placebo that goes along with this shit? And only dead fish go with the flow. Only dead fish go with the flow and become the antidote. By being authentic, by telling the truth. The trauma hack is not 
the exclusive ownership of people who've experienced genuine um, post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress. It's for everybody now. Everybody's traumatized. Everybody's bullied into a certain political position and a certain way of thinking about the world. And it's really, really hurting us all, all. Because we are one consciousness. You can't sleep well at night knowing that your brothers and sisters are in bondage and suffering and crying out in pain. You can't, it doesn't work like that. Would, would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple, but it isn't. So we will continue to be racked with neurosis and guilt and shame until the situation is properly and fully resolved. And if we do have a purpose on earth, that would be one of them. The understanding that I can't go to sleep with a, a, a full stomach whilst listening to the sounds of your children next door crying out in anguish because they're starving or because they're being abused. I'm not going to sleep well because they're me and I'm them and we're one, we're one unity. Um, the pathway to being an antidote rather than a placebo is through authenticity and through telling the truth. So you need a moral philosophy. You don't need religion for a moral, moral philosophy. You can develop your own moral philosophy, but you also need to be authentic and you need to be strong. The only way that you're going to become authentic and strong and emotionally mature is through becoming more emotionally literate. It's the only way. If you trust in this process, if you trust me, some oddball on YouTube, but you don't have to trust me. Don't put your faith in me. Put your faith in experimentation. Put your faith in trying what I'm suggesting. But do try it. Don't just think about it. Don't just come up with ever more complicated and complexifying questions about it. Do it. Do it. And if you do it for three days and it doesn't work, then stop doing it. Just say the guy's a fucking screwball and he doesn't know what he's on about and this process didn't work for me and walk away. Vote with your feet. It's as simple as that, but you must do it. Look from the, in, from the personal to the political. Look from the individual to the mass. Are we not, as a culture, extremely emotionally infantile? Are we not emotionally immature in the same way that a traumatized individual would be? You're all fluent in the language. You're all literate in the, in the language of, of psychology and sociology and philosophy, right? Well, most of you are, I think. Most people who come here, you know, they're a little bit older. They've read a few books and they've had a few thoughts. They, they know these things. So that's what we're living in. Culturally, we're living, living. Livery, 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 living. We're living in a state of a, a traumatic response. We're infantilized and we are infantilizing, but it's collapsing. It has to. It has to collapse. Um, I listened to a clip by Stuart Lee uh, the other day. Uh, he's a he's a stand-up comic um, from England, and uh, maybe I'll I'll edit it and, and upload it to YouTube. Actually, he was talking about social media and the effect that it has on people's brains. And he compared it to dolphins in captivity. And he said one of the things that drives dolphins in captivity mad, apart from the fact that they're like supposed to be in the ocean and not in a swimming pool, is that in these chambers that they're kept in, they are hearing the feedback of their own sonar, and it's torture. They're hearing themselves 
they're hearing themselves think, they're hearing themselves emote. We don't really know what the grunts and squeaks and whistles of dolphins are, but they, we know that they are a communication. So they can literally, they can't switch that off. That's how they're evolved. So all they're hearing is their own thoughts rocketing back to them, their own opinions rocketing back to them, their own feelings rocketing back to them over and over and over again. They're like social media, isn't it? I'll take a couple of questions now. Make them one sentence long. Make them as helpful as you think they can be for the collective, like a good little socialist. I'm joking. I'm just here to provoke you. I like to provoke. Uh, gather round. It is the end for me. I will share with you some words and then I will pass away. The gold, it's in the... Poor dolphins. Dolphin grunts mean I am hungry. What happens to a narcissist when they are exposed beyond all doubt? Example, at work. What does decompensation do psychologically? Thanks. Um, I, I believe that that's enormously stressful. Um... As it, as it would be, because this is a person who's working hard to fight for the control of the narrative of who they are and what their world is. And it's all based on, these are filthy. It's a metaphor. My lenses are filthy. They need to be purified so I can see the world properly. Um, they're working very hard to maintain a false self. So if they're force-fed data and feedback that their false self and their narrative is nonsense, it's going to be very, very, very painful and very stressful for them because think of it, that's the lifeboat that they've been clinging to since childhood and now you're deflating it. It's death for them. It's not really death. They're confused, but that's the state that they live in. Narcissists live in a perpetual state of delusion. So it's a very interesting psychological response. It might not be a personality disorder in the strictest sense, but it's definitely a response to trauma and it's definitely a CPTSD response and they definitely are codependent and they definitely are phone responders as well. It's wonderfully complicated uh, subject. We speak about it. Lisa Lightrider, how do I forgive? Hello. Um, you can uh, forgive. Ness seems to come most naturally from an altered perspective. So if we can elevate our perspective, if we can elevate the consciousness of our perspective, forgiveness just seems to occur. So it tends to be, I think, a question of the lens through which reality is being viewed, Clarice. It's all about the lens, Lawson. Do you have any hard, measured, thick, long data you could refer to? If you go to JSTOR or to Google Scholar, you can find some hard, mm, measured data. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's hard measured data out there for sure. I, I'm afraid I don't have my notes in front of me. <laughs> the only word document I have on my computer has hard measured data about the effects of... Uh, social media on young people. I don't have any references on my computer right now about narcissism, narcissism. How can you suggest we all move through our daily, our, our day and our tasks empowered 
Um, well, I, I released a couple of videos called How to Get Shit Done, which I highly recommend. Um, they're there on the YouTube channel. They're only like seven videos ago. Uh, and, you know, you probably should be doing the stop emotional flashback exercise because if you're flashbacking, it's going to make your day hard. Uh, the stop emotional flashback course is free. You just go to sparklifecoach.com and then you sign up to the email grabber that's there and it spews out, it spunks out. You shouldn't talk like that about a serious subject like this. It's ridiculous. Have a word with yourself. Sorry. It spunks out a course on uh, stopping emotional flashbacks. Adria Ross, may I please present a project I've been working on to you? If so, let me know the best way to present it. I'm afraid that I cannot keep up with my own projects at the moment, of which there are four, um, and I cannot. I'm so sorry. Uh, there, are, there are things that I have to start prioritizing now. So no, I wouldn't be able to do that. I apologize. I can hear the, the cats calling. Uh, I think I think it's making cats make a certain noise when another cat is in their territory. I think another cat is after its food. Dolphins in captivity are living in a bubble. Uh, yeah, what was I think it's called Blackfish. There was a documentary called Blackfish. That 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 made me very upset. That made me cry. Um, it's it's really awful to have these uh, creatures who have such a high uh, EQ, not emotional intelligence. Oh no, now I have to remember what emotional, what EQ is in the animal world. Encelographic quotient. So they have really big brains in the animal kingdom and we assume that they are highly intelligent. So to keep them in captivity is, is enormously cruel. Yes, I don't want you to call me friend. I want you to call me comrade, Tavarish. Why does it feel so personal? Do they treat everyone this way or, people, or just people like us? No. Um, never fall into the trap of thinking that it's you. They do what they do with everybody. Uh, think of them as like a little wind-up robot that's just going... And it can't see. Like it'll walk into a wall and bounce off it. They're going to do what they do with everybody. You, you, can, you can believe that. Do you follow Amazing Polly? I do not, but I enjoyed her video on Alice in Wonderland. I've got glasses here and I'm straining. What am I doing? Do you think there's any truth in Carl Program's holographic theory? My shift was cancelled. What a nice surprise you're on here. Um, I, I'm not familiar with Carl uh, Pribram's holographic theory. But every time I hear that name, I think of Miller Galanta and Pribram, which is a combination of dudes who came up with the test operate, test exit theory, the tote theory. Miller Galanta and Pribram. Miller Galanta and Pribram. Miller Galanta, Miller Galanta, Miller Galanta and Pribram. I'm going to make a mumble rap about, about totes. Totes. Test operate, test exit. It's like a systems thinking uh, principle. It's a really useful way of uh, thinking about skill. Why does autism get mistaken for narcissism? Um, yeah, I, I've, I've spoken about this elsewhere on the channel. I lived uh, with, in my life, I've lived with two flatmates who um, had been diagnosed with Asperger's and they'll, they can wind you up. Uh, the way um, somebody with MPD would. 
it's it's a it's it the the maybe the short form answer would be Asperger's can't perceive metacommunication, your body language, your tone of voice. They don't know when they're upsetting you because they can't like they don't have the ability to perceive metacommunication. Narcissists can and they don't care. They just keep going. So it can end up with the same thing. But it's probably about an inability to perceive metacommunication can feel like somebody smashing through the metacommunication. Can you tell us more about parenting? What is the role of the father? The Holy Father. I feel I may have had a weak father who allowed for my mother to enmesh with me. My God. Well, thanks. Thanks, Emil, for your question there. It's beautiful. Um, the Let's leave that on screen. Uh, oh, my parenting. Oh, Jesus. No, I'm not talking about my parenting. You'll... <laughs> no. No, I won't. You can't make me. What is the role of the father? Um, well, I think I think I would agree. Agree. I would agree with the uh, the more sort of it's like classical um, psychodynamic theory, uh, which is that there is this. I I now admit it. I denied it for many years. There's like an archetypal role that the father has. Um, he would be the person who presents the yang in the family unit as opposed to the mother's yin, as opposed to not meaning in opposition to, but representing the polarity between uh, nurturing, nourishing, um, loving, and his uh, discipline, his uh, a, a capacity to allow the children to model assertiveness, but obviously both parents, man and woman, yang has yin in it, yin has yang in it. They should both be balanced in themselves, hopefully. But the father's role, seeing as you said, the father's role would be yang. The mother's role, classically, archetypally, would be yin. So um, the father is there to teach the little boys and the little girls in the family how to go out into the world bravely with a straight back and to look people in the eye and to ask for what they want and to behave with nobility. Um, the mother's role would be, the, so they've carried the father forward internally. The mother's role internally, my internal mother, would be uh, there to remind me to uh, take care of my own needs, to treat people with compassion, as well as respect and assertiveness and boundaries, to show affection and love for my partner, for my own children and so on. I feel I may have had a weak father while well, we're from a generation of men with weak fathers um, who allowed for my mother to match with me. Yep. Yep. We're from a generation of, of, of weak, weak fathers, weak or absent or fathers who simply abrogated their responsibility. Lots of reasons for that. Lots of factors have affected that, but that's, uh, that's, a, that's I'm afraid is the way it is. And uh, you will probably struggle um because of the enmeshment with your mother there's probably hyper feminization there you'll probably be dealing with elements of of anima possession issues around self-assertiveness i know i did because my father was whilst not uh, a weak man himself um totally disinterested and allowed for enmeshment with my mother so there you go there it is what these are, these are things I do to keep myself going. <laughs> what? And who did it? Oh, no, they didn't. What? 
Homer said in the Odyssey, rare is the son greater than his father. Femmesnim. Femmesnim, it breeds narcissism. <laughs> yes, feminism uh, is a, a, a narcissistic um, response. Uh, but it, like narcissism, it's a response to trauma. So the response to trauma is is narcissistic to the extent that it's predatory. So when narcissism develops, you have the ideology of a person who's been victimized, who says, no more will I be the victim. I'll be the oppressor. <laughs> it's like, whoa, you were doing so well until you came to that conclusion. I'm going to turn it all on its head. Poison Squid says a child needs to feel his father is protecting them. Absolutely. Um, there is, when a, when a father is present and protecting the children and they feel that, I hypothesize a piece of source code that you need is written and goes into the system that says, I'm okay. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out. When the father is not present and not protecting, that piece of source code is missing and people can be quite anxious. They struggle to attach safely to others. They struggle to assert themselves and so on. Lucy asks, should I consider to have a child if we in such time um sure you should consider it but you're a stranger i can't tell you whether you should or should not have children but you should definitely consider it you're allowed to consider it consider the pros consider the cons consider uh where you're up to in life and who you're going to have the child with and what kind of a life you can offer the child and then make a, a rational decision based on that Eugene rose is here hello Eugene rose Rise and Shine says they create a nest in your mind, alternate reality for you to leave your mind and they implant themselves. Absolutely true. It's like um, Nietzsche spoke about a slave morality. I think there's a slave mentality where a part of your mind is hijacked and then colonized by a slave master. And then your response is fawning to the slave master because that superego can really hurt you. Excuse me, comrades. It is the sickness. How to escape the living false reality that it and those in it don't want you to heal from your traumas at all costs. Emotional literacy, my friend. You're going to have to... You're going to have to... Everybody is... Listen. Listen. You're going to have to grow up. You're going to have to grow up. You're not going to get the solutions to the challenges and the problems that you face in your life at this level of consciousness that you're working at right now. You've got to elevate that consciousness. You need to become a new person. You need to grow. You need to transcend your current limitations. Emotional literacy is the way to do that. That means this is kind of every few years, this concept comes up and it comes up to me again and again, and it's, it's weird and it's frightening, but it's useful. Years ago, in the midst of a deep traumatic, what I didn't even know was an emotional flashback in 2009, I was in my uh, bedroom having some sort of a breakdown, you know, like a proper one, like um, like um, that Viet Viet Vietnam movie, The Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now. 
where apparently the actor who was an alcoholic actually did have a breakdown. You know, you're spinning naked in your room, drunk, high on drugs, um, screaming and crying like a lunatic. Uh, and when I'd recovered from that, I was like, you know, this is, I'm insane. I'm, this is insanity. I want a placeholder for this moment. And I imagine myself in my room, in my chamber, as they used to be known. And I would came out of my chamber and I observed myself and I looked down and I said, this is a reality. This is a timeline and I want to escape it. And then this other voice came back to me and went, yeah, you can, but the you that is you that escapes this reality isn't the you that's on that bed. And I said, what happens then? I was like, I can, I can get that. So I need to be a different person to escape the limitations of my current reality. What happens to him? And the boy said, he stays there. <laughs> so in a certain sense, in this really spooky horror movie, Black Mirror, Twilight Zone way, you never really escape. You never really escape. The you that is you stays there. Only the new you escapes. It's gross. It's a horrible idea. Uh, there was a film um, where uh, there's, a, there's a magician doing a trick where he seemed to drown himself and then come back to life. And that was his trick. But actually what was happening was he hadn't figured out how to drown himself and come back to life. He'd only found how to clone himself. He only found out to clone himself. So he was literally drowning himself every night on stage. And then his clone would take over so that the show could go on. He killed himself again and again and again. This is horrible, uh, but fascinating um, idea. Uh, there is a, a series on Netflix that, that um, I watched three episodes of the other night with Paul Rude that explores a, a, a similar concept. It's called Living With Yourself. It's good. I recommend it. It's good. Good fun. Well written. Um, so yeah, in a certain sense, you never escape. You're hermetically sealed by Hermes in your chamber, like an Egyptian king forever. And all your stuff, all your possessions, all of your things, and even your servants stay there with you. And you stay in that timeline. You stay there. I went to see in Prague the other day with uh, with Pierre. We went to, well, it was my suggestion to see an exhibition of um, Tutankhamun. And uh, they had probably seven artifacts from that time period. And then the rest of it was like an interactive cinema experience. Um, but it, it put this kind of thing in mind. Obviously, I flew there, and every time I fly, I I have this really strong conscious awareness that we're hermetically sealed inside of a chamber. And then we do this weird intradimensional jump through time zones and through language barriers and culture barriers that's extremely rapid. And um, I've noticed, and I've heard other people say that I become more emotionally vulnerable on flights. I've heard other people say that. <laughs> the same voice that told me that I would be stuck in that timeline forever is like, yes, because you're dying. <laughs> <laughs>
you never land. You never land. You a version of you lands, but it wasn't the version of you that got on. People watching this like, oh damn, I'm never taking a flight ever again. <laughs> but there, there is some truth to this, which is like the you that is you now with this level of consciousness, the language coordinates that you're operating from, the belief system that you're operating from never leaves here. It can't. It's like a, um, it's a software fault. You think, oh, I will. So our fantasy, our fantasy, our infantile fantasy is the me that is me right now. You know, the five-year-old you never went to college. The five-year-old you never went to uh, secondary school, high school. The five-year-old you is still there. The five-year-old me, I remember having a very conscious moment where I was told that by the time I was 12, I couldn't have my toys. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? What, all of them? And they were like, well, you'd keep a couple of things, but you'd be embarrassed at age 12 to have all these toys. And my, my mind was blown. And I was terrified of the timeline of when I would be 12 and when I would lose, like I had boxes of, of like Lego and Star Wars figures. This is like 1983 and I had all of them. They're probably worth six squillion pounds now. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're all gone. They all got thrown away. Um, and I was terrified, but the five-year-old me never lost his toys because by the time I was 12, I'd discovered girls and I didn't give a shit about my toys. Do you see? So our infantile fantasy is I'm me that is me is going to travel along in this bubble to the new experience. And you're not. As you travel, you change because you're not you, linguistically, you living an experience. You're not like, oh, I'm, let's take a really simple one. Like I'm going to Thailand. The me that is me is going to Thailand and then I'll come back. It's like, well, no, because you are not separate from other people and separate from your reality. You're part of it. So, of course, like, and you'll, you'll, like, if you go to another country, you'll feel the language creep in and you'll feel the culture creep in and the new smells and the new environment and the new flora and the new fauna and the new molecules kind of get inside of you. So I have a little bit of Thailand in me. I have a little bit of Malaysia in me. I have a bit of New Zealand in me. And that culture and those cultural references are still there. And maybe they're, maybe they're communicated. I don't know. Maybe they're communicated at, at an unconscious level. Sorry, guys. I went on for a long time there. The Prestige. Yes, that was the film. Doesn't the old you transform and disappear from healing? Yes, it does. The old you grows up and heals. Sorry, guys, I went on a little bit for a, for a long time there. Um, if you shoot me a question, I'll, I'll make it my last question. Hello from Bangkok. Sorry, cup. I can't say that, but hello. There's a bit, there's a bit of you that's that's in me. You know, when I when I went to New Zealand, um, it was 2010, and it was the year after I'd had this uh, this experience. I still wasn't I still wasn't very well, um, and uh, well, I'd, I'd gone from 2009 
In fact, this story is, is relevant. Maybe that was my unconscious. So that chamber I was in, I stayed there, but another version of me actually went to Thailand and then from Thailand went to Malaysia and then from Malaysia flew down to New Zealand and every flight I took that version of me died. And then I stayed in New Zealand for nine months. And um, I referenced Malaysia a lot as a place that offered me a lot of healing and a lot of redemption. Thailand as well did. Um, I was very lucky. Like I felt sort of held in, in that place. New Zealand was critical. New Zealand was critical because I went there and I was working with people who were extremely mentally ill. One of the guys I referenced before that was a, a flatmate or a housemate who'd actually been diagnosed as Asperger's actually had Asperger's and I think also had MPD. He had MPD because uh, childhood trauma, basically. A, a stepfather was so abusive, he'd knocked his eye out, moved his eye from his head. Um, so he's wearing, you know, he had a, a false eye. It was pretty bad. And I was working with these two guys and it was a nightmare. They were both English living in New Zealand. And they, the, the first thing they said to me was, talking about code breaking, they said, New Zealanders will never accept you. Kiwis will never accept you. You're English, you're a POM, that's it. Inside of two months, I wasn't just accepted by the Kiwis, but I was working for a security firm um, called Pride Security. It might still be there, run by uh, two, two, two guys. One of the guys is a, is a rapper, Herman. <laughs> and uh, it, I was the first white guy that they'd ever employed in, in the security firm. And they took me right in. They took they, they they took me right in. I was I was inside of a community that was that was taking care of me inside of uh, a couple of months, like two months, and that was a hugely important experience in my recovery because it showed me that there's really nothing wrong with me. There's really nothing, and I didn't do anything for that to happen. I just turned up and spoke to people. I was just chatting to people. But having that was this big, big uh, reference experience for me. And I was like, holy fuck. And it was tight. It was a really, really tight community. It was a big, big, uh, important experience. And I walked away from it. And I never, I never really sort of said thank you. I never was like, oh, thanks. Because it was, it was mixed. It was, um, it was Maori, Tongan, and Samoan. Sorry for saying Maori like that. But I think it's weird when white people say Maori. Uh, it was Maori, Samoan, and Tongan, and it was a mix. It was a mixed group, but that it was just warm, man. It was really, really warm culture. Very, very, very friendly culture. It was, uh, it was nice. It was nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a. Um, uh, yeah, I, I hear you, my Australian friend. Uh, there is, there is a thing there. Um, it's, it's, it's an odd. I don't need to tell an Australian like New Zealand culture. New Zealand white culture is a little bit odd. Uh, it's it's kind of like it's a bit it's a bit passive aggressive and a bit uptight in a way that Aussies obviously aren't. Um, so yeah, it was uh, still yeah. I'm gonna leave that one because it's it's race. <laughs> I just can't be bothered <laughs> for dancing through that minefield. Rich, did you help several years ago when my soul was boxed? It was a detox. He had to be burned out of my soul. Thank you for what you do. No problem at all. I'm glad that I helped you. Um, 
Okay, ladies and gents, thank you very much for your time and your attention on that one. Sorry for all the coughing and the sniffing. I hope that it was useful and um, I'll leave it there. And uh, once I've recovered, I'll do another video. So I'll be speaking to you soon, probably someday. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.